pandemic got us into a reflective space and made us look inward to see what we can do for the world at large. As a self-expression coach, I became a catalyst for women and started Vani, a one-on-one -on -one coaching program for women on finding their voice, to speak up, to be visible. As a storyteller, I spotted there were many ordinary people amongst us leading extraordinary lives, making a difference to the world, and they needed to be heard. Thus was born You and I with Rashmi Shetty, where amazing personal journeys with their uniqueness and individuality are showcased. A reaffirmation of the fact, open your eyes wider, the world is far more beautiful when we acknowledge the presence of both you and I. Our guest today is Vasudev Murthy. Vasu is a soul in transit, presently residing in Bangalore. He is an author, a visiting faculty to colleges, plays the violin and is a yoga and animal welfare enthusiast while being a management consultant. He heads Focal Concepts, a management consulting and leadership development firm. Listen in as Vasudev shares his journey into writing his latest book, Yoga Sutras Simplified, a soul-searching adventure with Patanjali. Hi Vasu, such a pleasure seeing you after so long and understanding what exactly is little Vasu is a story that we have to revisit now because you are somebody I always notice who is like full of energy, full of life. Was little Vasu also like that? Welcome to you and I with Rashmi Shetty and let's listen to your story. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rashmi. Very, very kind of you. Um, uh, so first of all, I think it's, it's quite an honor to be on your show. I've been uh, watching several episodes and, you know, you've done a fantastic job with some great people. So I appreciate this opportunity. It's, uh, you know, one of a kind, certainly. Um, uh, <laughs> well, as far as uh, what I was when I was a little boy, well, you know, uh, I was actually quite shy, if I remember. I was always hiding behind my mom uh, to quite an age. I was always running behind us, thing behind us. My whole, only thing was music, a bit of cricket, and and those kinds of things. I would like to believe I was a I was a quiet kid who was very very uh, deeply immersed in music. Okay, I, I think I was a very obnoxious brat, to be perfectly honest. I'm sure I was not a very pleasant kid to have around. I had sisters, so I grew up, uh, you know, in their shadows, so to say. Uh, but my mother was, uh, you know, the person uh, with her, with her vena and her vocal and all the things she used to do for music to encourage me. Uh, especially the violin that came along. I mean, uh, that was me. I asked for it and she, she, you know, made it happen. So she was my rock in that sense. So I suppose uh, uh, that was the saving grace. Otherwise, you know, if you and I had grown up together, you would probably not have wanted to be anywhere close to, to me. I was really not a very pleasant child, I think. And, uh, but okay, maybe things evolved. Maybe I saw the world. Maybe I grew up. Maybe I'm still growing up. I don't know. But yeah, if talking about little Vasu, yes, I was like that. Cricket was a passion, uh, music, uh, what else? Um, uh, yeah, I suppose things like that. Stamp collection. My mother was much into stamp collection. So that was probably good because uh, as I was quite a kid, it was good to be in, in, a, in a little place and collect stamps and understand the world. Remember, we're talking about a time when there was no TV, right? We talked about a time when there was no TV, no nothing. Okay. So uh, those were the, the quiet hobbies you cultivated going over my mother's, uh, you know, library of books, which she had inherited from her father. So things like that. So I think I had a, had a very, uh, for myself, looking back, those are very, very positive and good things uh, as, as a young boy to have been exposed to these kinds of things. Uh, because, you know, for example, music, you know, you have to, uh, you can't simply say you're talented. You can be talented, but without practice, nothing happens with the talent. So I was fortunate that, you know, I, I really loved it. I used to sit in a room quietly, a dark room. I used to make sure the lights were off nothing could be seen. And that's where I used to do my violent practice because I just loved that kind of stuff. So I suppose that is the complicated, uh, uh, annoying uh, kid I was, yeah. Okay, but you never mentioned studies, Vasu. How were you as a student? Uh, I think I was just average. I, just, uh, I really, I, I was average. I was um, uh, thrashed several times at school. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, and I deserved it. I really deserved, probably I deserved even more uh, because, you know, I, I, I would just not do stuff or, or whatever. 
obviously then things changed in, in 10th, 11th, 12th, but up till that time I was, I was goofing off and, uh, you know, doing all the terrible things that little boys are not supposed to do. I did all of that stuff. I had a collection of friends. In fact, you know, I grew up partly in Delhi and partly in Maleshwaram, uh, Bangalore. At that time, uh, you know, I was running around uh, playing, um, uh, you know, marbles on the streets of 18th, uh, 18th cross, 17th cross with other little brats in their, in their uh, you know, uh, uh, half, half pants and a t-shirt, totally grubby, messy. Or it was just a lovely, lovely kind of Malgudi type of, uh, uh, you know, scene. Now I think about it. Really, really fun. But in the process, obviously, you do everything you're not supposed to do. And I think that's good. That, that is actually good. So that made me even more obnoxious, as opposed to some people. Luckily, or unluckily, whatever, because I kept moving from place to place. So I, I got exposed to different cultures, different music, and probably evolved as, 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 a, as, a, as a young boy, I would think. So yeah, luckily, things became OK in 11th and 12th. <laughs> OK. So what did you do in 11th and 12th? You followed the herd mentality, took science? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, what happened was in 11th, I remember there was a, a very peculiar incident. Somehow, I had set my, uh, my mind that I want to be a doctor. OK. Uh, but unfortunately, I got zero in some test in, in, the, in the 11th, an actual total zero. And it was um, uh, then the guy, you know, he said he was so angry with me and he used a lot of very uh, hurtful, <laughs> hurtful words. And that was the end of life sciences for me. And then I, I went into my engineering thing, just like I suppose any any young boy of his type. So I went off to a place called Rurki, uh, you know, which is IIT. Uh, but yeah, that's where I went. Uh, and then, you know, things happened from there. Oh my God, you make it sound like getting into IIT is the easiest thing. <laughs> well, I don't know. It, 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 see, as I said, you mentioned the herd thing, right? So yeah. since it's, it was a herd, you were forced to do some things. I honestly, uh, you know, uh, you, you, well, one should not regret anything, obviously. That's not, not, not helpful. But, uh, you know, my mind was actually, I was into music and writing and those kinds of things. I continue to do very much now. But because at that time, choices, we didn't have choices and we didn't have no one to counsel us on what we are right, what we ought to be doing, etc. So you basically for that there was no, you know, this highly complex collage of counselors and this and that aptitude, great words we use today. That time there was no, nothing like that. You just did it and you didn't have any time to, you know, cogitate and brood. So yes, like everybody else, I also signed up for... Uh, these uh, preparatory classes and, and so on and so forth. And somehow I bumbled my way into, into Rudy. That's what oh, happened. Okay. <laughs> and uh, where did writing happen, uh, Vasu? Because uh, you just said that uh, writing was something that you did even then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a scientist. So, you know, I, again, I, I will, I, as, I, as I hinted to you, it was actually, uh, you know, all, all thanks to my late mother, hmm. right? So she had inherited her, her love of reading uh, from her father. Mm. And so there were a whole bunch of books sitting in a corner. In fact, there were two or three books in particular. One was two compendiums of called the, the Secrets and Stories of World War I and World War II. Mm. I must have read them 10,000 times. And they were thick books which had lots of stories about that. And uh, so she was very good, though she was herself, she had only been, uh, I guess her father did not allow her to go to school beyond fourth or fifth, fifth grade. But she had a real aptitude for languages, languages, all kinds of language. And I mean, even till her last day, she died in her early 80s. Uh, but, you know, principles of grammar, infinitive participles and all that stuff was, was at her fingertips. And in fact, she learned French as well uh, on her own. And she was she used to take me. She was a French guide to many uh, tourists who used to come here. And I used to, as a little boy, I used to tag along with her. And we used to go to Hampi and not Hampi, uh, Belur, Halle Beat, all those places. So she was she was quite a, you know, a, a woman of, uh, of her times, an extraordinary person, very honestly. Uh, so, yes, the love of reading and writing and encouraging and exposing me to various kinds of, uh, you know, interesting movies, concerts, again, going back to music, right? I mean, that was the greatest gift of all. I mean, bar none, I absolutely, I may not have made a name for myself with music. I don't even want to, that's a different issue. But she used to take me to Sheshadri Puram uh, College. If you, if you know, even today, yeah. they have lots, lots of concerts over there. So, you know, think of it, uh, you know, a, a lady uh, taking a small boy along quite regularly to Sheshadri Puram and I'm sitting there with her. Oh, these are great things she did, either consciously or maybe she didn't realize it. But all that obviously had a, had a great effect. So that was as far as music is concerned. But like I said, writing, that was always going on. I mean, in the sense of reading. See, if you read a lot, you are going to one day start writing. So because of that, I suppose I started doing well in my essays and those kinds of things. And I always did rather well in, in, uh, in that uh, through, through my, through my college, college, various colleges that I went to. So yes, that's where it came from. I, I, oh, yes. And one other thing. 
Uh, I, I had, uh, this is maybe the story is uh, off the record, I'm not very sure. But I had some friends in, uh, when I was in Delhi. And uh, of course, that, that guy sadly enough passed away. But he was uh, deeply in love with somebody, okay, this, this girl. Now, he wanted to express himself. And he couldn't. So that the first story of story of Indian outsourcing, you know, everybody says this outsourcing happened in Bangalore, right? Uh, in the immediate 80s. No, that's wrong. It happened in the late 70s in New Delhi when love poetry, love stories, love letters were outsourced to me. So I would do all the, all, all the writing and he would pass it off as his work and he achieved great success. So somehow, you know, people also encouraged me to do, to do these kinds of things. It was a lot of fun. No, uh, what I'm really curious about is, oh. even if you're going to write love stories and love uh, poems, it's a lot of inclination towards reading romantic novels or, uh, yeah. Mm. So what kind of books were you exposed to? What were you reading? Just about well, anything uh, you could lay your hands on? Well, well, well yes, remember, we, there was a, always, a, like I said, the books had to be recycled, read them again and again and again. Two of my sisters in particular, one was much into P.G. Woodhouse. That was all she would do day in and out. She'd be sitting in a corner and laughing, you know. So obviously that I was curious as to what that was. The other sister was not like that at all. Another sister was into romantic stuff, romantic stuff. And uh, because I was young, I was not supposed to read it. So obviously, therefore, I did it, did it right? That was the idea, right? <laughs> so yes, so she was fond of Mills and Boons and, you know, she always VP about these things and all that. So I obviously had to read her books and understand what the heck was going on. So yes, those kind of things happened. I would say my sisters also get a lot of credit for... Uh, reading stuff which I was not supposed to read, therefore forcing me to read them. So I will I will blame them or give them credit, whichever way, way you want. <laughs> and uh, did you start contributing to school magazines? And yes, yes, I did. I did. Do you I remember did. what was your first article? Um, one of my first uh, articles, well, uh, I'm talking about college now and I went to Rurki, was actually uh, uh, one of those love stories that I had written for my friend. Okay. I, 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 I put it over there. And then we used to write other kinds of non-fiction. I wrote a little bit about music and those kinds of things. But, you know, as let's say, I was just supposed to be a good writer, whatever that meant. Then along came, then when I went to the US, then of course we had to write essays. I did pretty well for all those standard essays. Now let's, let's talk about writing as, as before I come to what I, I did. There is writing and there's writing. What do I mean by that? Most of us with a, with a, with a flair for the languages or whatever can easily with some little effort pull off a nice, readable essay of about a thousand words quite quite well there's a beginning there's an end there's a whole thought process most of us can do that but the real thing is the marathon which is where we're talking about larger things 30,000 50,000 80,000 words where you know there's there's a test of stamina creativity uh, staying power and all those kinds of things so obviously that didn't happen till till much much later much much later where I started writing essays and uh, you know then I was Obviously, in terms of nonfiction, because of my professional things, I started writing long reports, this report, that report. So all that was happening. Uh, yes, so that was that is where, and I and then I was in a, in a in a in a consulting firm called Deloitte Consulting, which was that time this is before the, uh, they they started getting into IT. So they were a pure play, what we call a, a management consulting firm, and uh, there we had to write a lot of proposals and so on and so forth, uh, hardcore proposals. So I thought I was the cat's whiskers as far as the writing will is concerned, but I was not actually. And then I, I, I you know, had some very good senior people who really gave me a whole lot of great guidance on, on polishing writing and so on and so forth. The net result of that was that uh, obviously I wrote many proposals. And then when I came back to India and I started teaching at IM Bangalore, which I think you're aware of, I used to teach these uh, courses on consulting for uh, the executive MBA program. And during that time, there was a very long period during which I used to teach uh, this particular course. One of the publishers uh, from, from uh, New Delhi, uh, Sage publish, Publishers, you may have heard of them, they approached me and they asked me to write a book on proposal writing, how to write proposals. Uh, the first time I met you, uh, Rashmi, was in the context of my book on music, yeah. if you remember. Yeah, yeah. But I'm talking about the professional side now, that was where I, had, I should teach people how to write proposals. And then I ultimately wrote a book on, on proposals, which by today's standards is, is uh, frankly outdated. And But anyway, that helped me in many ways. So today, I have some kind of a professional uh, position in the in the in the in the, something called the Association for Proposal Management Professionals. I'm some kind of an office bearer, and I give talks and workshops on, on proposal writing. So that writing, which the, the the seed of which was put into my mother and then cultivated by circumstances, friends, sisters, uh, by profession, 
ultimately ended up in me actually teaching people how to write professionally. I'm talking about, uh, you know, proposals and those kinds of things. And um, uh, then I, you know, you probably know I have a compendium now, this is my, uh, of eight books, maybe we'll talk about that. But four of them are nonfiction, or at least the first book that you and I talked about was a mixture of fiction and nonfiction in the sense of ragas and, and associated stories. But there are three others which are uh, nonfiction. So, uh, but what I found, what I found was that I was able to take risks. Okay, I had the uh, cocky, cockiness or, or confidence, whatever you want to call it. So even my nonfiction books, one of them is out there, uh, has liberal doses of creativity and nonsense in it. Okay, because sometimes, you know, to make people understand, this is my way of teaching or, or whatever, I like to uh, introduce humor as part of the, the narrative. And it, it, it makes a difference. You know, when you try to break the tension in a room when you're discussing something serious, uh, uh, liberal doses of, of, uh, of humor does help. So that's what I've done in my thing. So I'm, in other words, the nonfiction also has very bizarre, uh, you know, little, little subplots and stories, which are obviously fiction. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so that's what I've managed to do. I've managed to do both fiction, nonfiction. I have blurred, blurred it in my own mind anyway. Uh, you know, the so-called distinction. But my curiosity now is picked with, uh, you started with that book that Sage Publishers approached you for. But how huh. did the book on ragas happen? And subsequently, the other non-fiction books happen. Did you sure. put that proposal out to them and take it forward? Well, uh, okay. The, te technically, the sequence was that the book on music came out first. Okay, I'm quite a votary for animal rights. I have my own philosophy about it and so on. So there was a period of time I was very, very worked up about the whole issue. You know, I had thought about many angles. I couldn't, uh, the whole thing, see this, this injustice and what have you. You know, it was, it was, very, it was weighing on my mind. So I wrote a novel, the theme of which was on animal rights. Uh, and basically it was that the animal world was, uh, had, there was an uprising in the animal world. And it was time for revenge. And then we were all, it was a, a, what we call a dystopian novel where we were all, we were all eliminated. I'm talking about the human race. I enjoyed that. The whole thought was, was very pleasant to me. You know, I'm an animal uprising and we were all eliminated. Sounds good. So I wrote it with a lot of passion. And then I had an encouragement from a couple of friends. Uh, then I submitted it to, um, to a literary agent who then submitted it to Rupa. Rupa and Co was a publisher. They kind of liked it. And they said, uh, could you consider, uh, you know, making these changes, which is fine. I, I said, okay, this, these changes make sense. Now, during that time, it so happened that I had gone to Chennai for some uh, visit. Um, and I had at that time bought uh, uh, two uh, uh, books of Kumar Gandharva, you know, Kumar Gandharva, his, uh, his compositions. There I was sitting in that uh, train, you know, the, the, the Cheka train to Chennai and then back to Chennai reading this book because of course there was no mobile phones, nothing. So there was a book and I was so captivated by the brilliance of his compositions. I said, this is air raising. Then I came home and I just in a frenzy, I wrote three chapters, the first three chapters of the book, which I think you have, you've read it, uh, you know, it started with a very unusual uh, rag close to Desh and then uh, then it went to Jai Jai Vanti and Jogia and Bhairav and whatnot. So it was all in a rush because the compositions just took me, you know, they just took me by, uh, by a gale force. So then I made those changes to the original uh, animal uh, rights book. And then I also tucked in these three or four chapters of this book on music. So that thing was about, uh, it pretty much described me as a, somebody going through life. Uh, and then at various points in his life, uh, you know, different ragas come to him, the personifications. Uh, so Surat, for example, was the very first chapter. Is, is really about peace and meditation. And then Jogia is about being completely insane about, uh, you know, kind of a, a passion for God and what have you, like that, those kind of things. Then they said, Mr. Murthy, you know what, uh, the animal welfare thing is very beautiful, but there's no market for it. But we think this book has got potential. So that, well, that's how, that's a story of how that book came to be. And of course, there was some editorial thing, but it, it was it was very well done because at that time, the, okay, at that time, the, the managing director of Rupa and Co is an elderly gentleman, Tamehra, and he was much onto a culture trip at that point. So when this particular manuscript reached him, he was actually planning to have a collection of two or three books on Indian culture at about that time. So this was the right fit for him. Plus he published another book on dance and one on something else. I can't remember what it was. So he published those two, three books at the same time. And then, you know, he, uh, it was, it was, he knew the, the then governor of, of Karnataka, Mr. T.N. Chaturvedi. And so we actually had the book released there as a kind of symbol of Indian culture and what have you. So it was quite, quite a, you know, a nice kind of a thing. Uh, anyway, so that was that. Uh, and then, then came the book on, on proposal writing. 
Now to answer your question about the other thing, because my professionally, you know, I, I, I also do other things, leadership training and, and all that stuff. And I've worked in several organizations. So then also being a professor, I kind of felt there is, there is a disconnect between theory and practice. When I say that, what I mean is the, the textbook says something, uh, but the reality oftentimes in the, in the corporate world is different and nobody actually has documented it. Okay, so for, I'll give you one example, two examples. One is what they call politics. They say, oh, this organization is political. Now, nobody teaches you about politics at B school. This is something you learn because of exposure and you have an, a bad opinion about it. But actually, politics is not a bad thing is what I, what I have mentioned. And, you know, it is, it is a natural order for human beings to start segregating at a particular critical mass of six to seven people. We start becoming groups and so on and so on. That is one. The second thing, for example, is, is for example, sexual harassment. Nobody tells you about that in B school. That's going to happen and how, what forms it takes, what happens. And I have seen those things. I have seen people at the highest level getting away with it. No one's going to tell you about it. And as far as the rest of the world is concerned, these are, you know, fantastic wow, luminaries, you know, in the business world. And no one's, no one's going to dare to say that. But wait a minute, didn't he, didn't he say that? Didn't he? No one's going to say any of that. So that's what I've said. So this like, second book, uh, second book after the proposal writing was about how organizations really work. So one is a complete theory because theory is important. What is marketing? What is sales? What is strategy? All that is in great detail, supplemented by the practical side of it. Why do people dislike HR? Why is finance feared? You know, why is, uh, what does strategy mean? And why should anybody be in strategy? And like that, like many kinds of things like that. Um, so that was, that was why, that's why they really work, how they really work, supplemented with what we call mind maps, you may be familiar, plus my insane stories that I mentioned to you as humor relief right? in, in, this, in this discourse of serious, serious uh, stuff, you know, liberal doses of, uh, for example, in the HR, HR chapter, right? I talk about uh, an, a freshly minted MBA in diapers coming for his interview because, you know, and demanding a senior vice president uh, position at the age of five, things like that, you know? I mean, obviously, uh, highly exaggerated and, 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 and bizarre stuff. But I believe it does help. People then enjoy the rest of it as well, like balancing it out. That was, uh, and uh, so that was the second, uh, so, sorry, third actually, because if you look at the first music book, that was partly uh, nonfiction as well, because I did talk about the theory of those rags as well, uh, underneath the story. So music, proposals, organizations, and now the fourth one, which I think you're familiar with, which was formally uh, released on the 15th of October, was about the Yoga Sutras, which is a completely different thing. It's got nothing to do with anything I've written before, and it was... Uh, reflected my uh, you know uh, past 20 30 years of madness about yoga uh, but i want you to take one step back please and talk about uh, the animal rights activist that you are yeah. when did that okay. bit come into your life yeah yeah that is that is uh, it's been a it's been a perpetual thing i i can't put my finger on it but obviously uh, uh, you know i my mother was again you will hear, hear me talk about my mother all the time and uh, I think when, when I, when, you know, when I, when I started getting some sense of reason, first of all, there was a dog in the house that itself makes a small difference. And then I remember my mother telling me a story of how when she was a young woman, she accidentally killed a sparrow. Okay. Uh, when she was closing the door, it was an accident. And she, and that was, I'm talking about 20, 30 years after the incident, she still sat and wept about, you know, she would talk about it and start weeping that why did I do such a thing? And, you know, that thing was there. So, uh, you know, I, then I remember uh, my sister and I, who was also older, she, she and I were crazy about dogs, rescues, and so on and so forth. Now, this is interesting. We are, we are both in Bangalore, and both of us are familiar with Cupa, right? But, but do you know that uh, Cupa was started by this lady called Crystal Rogers uh, in, in, in Delhi. So she had actually was a UK, she was a citizen of the United Kingdom, and she was visiting India on a vacation, and she started... She noticed the plight of animals and she started uh, uh, so, you know, a, a shelter in Delhi where I grew up. You know, I guess my sister and I we used to be, be, be busy collecting animals. We heard about her. And then I remember finding a pup in a, in a ditch and then I called her. That I remember we had landlines and all, yeah. all very different, different days. And I stayed in South Delhi and she was in North Delhi. And she came all the way to meet me and, uh, you know, she took the pup. And I was very, very touched by all this stuff happening. So yes, that was very much a part of it. And I was, um, you know, I was, uh, to this day, I have seen that whenever I encounter cruelty, I'm unable to speak. I get apoplectic with, with anger and rage. 
you know you should you think a guy like me wrote about the yoga sutras should not get angry but animal cruelty is something i'm not able to handle so anyway uh, so it went to various extents i'm sure you have done these kinds of things little rescues here that and that that is that's going on then in uh, uh, in the past 10 years i got associated with the uh, i became a honorary animal welfare officer okay i had to take an exam and attend some seminars and i used to get an id card from the animal welfare board of india uh, and we have done some pretty good work not only me others as well individual cases apartment complex cases utter cruelty cases into you know oh i i don't know to tell you certain things that i have seen is really bad elephants we had rescued five or six elephants who were in terrible terrible condition uh, so many of these things we have done and it's a very central part of my my thinking i am not able to accept uh, human superiority as a concept i'm not able to accept that we are at the apex of uh, you know so called creation all that is not possible you heard a dog barking just now this fellow is a is a, is a pug who was thrown out of a after a moving car in hebal he came with head injuries to me he has never been normal but he's there he's my friend he like then many others another guy over there he was not fed for like i don't know how many weeks he came like a skeleton so these things are important to me i don't view them as pets i don't view them as somehow inferior in any way i view them as equals sometimes more than equals because they don't aspire for anything that we aspire for they just want they 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 do their own thing you know and in fact the philosophy of yoga says do not covet this do not ask for this do not ask which is one wonderful concept i think they already reached there so yeah animal welfare is important to me even today uh, every week i get two calls from somebody saying can you help us with this or can you guide us here and so on so uh, i don't mind doing that i i address meetings i conduct webinars i know the the laws of india as far as the prevention of cruelty to animals is concerned i can guide people with sections that are applicable i help in filing fir's about cruelty a help in confiscation i think that's nothing great about it it's something uh, you know i need to do okay so here you are somebody who's into music somebody who's into animal welfare project management when did yoga come into your life it's actually an interesting story when i was in rurki i used to fall ill very often for no particular reason i was just one of those hyper person i'm still hyper you can you can you can tell but there i was also angry all the time for no reason i really don't i was just uh, what they call a rebel without a cause you heard the term right so i used to come back i would fall sick to this malaria cholera this problem that problem this operation that it was just a constant recurring theme I, it was a very bad thing you know and uh, I, i think i was just i was an unpleasant guy frankly i don't think i was because of that you know you become your personality also becomes a little strange my my father took me to this um, uh, yoga i guess some spiritual guy uh, somewhere near cantonment bangalore cantonment to meet him that was my first exposure unfortunately that meeting had no result in the sense that the man was very pedantic and you know he was trying to talk down to a, or, or to a boy who was already angry about things for no for no reason so it had it had no effect so that didn't work and i went to the us and strangely enough my so called yoga journey started there and i used to come back from work i started going to this uh, yoga studio run by this lady um, and i did yoga because i thought i had i needed some physical kind of a thing that was of course actually not the intent of yoga at all but that's how 99% of people feel when you say yoga classes we're talking about yoga asana you know doing twisting turning so i was one of the uh, you know to the same then i came back to india and again uh, you know because of uh, whatever happened my dad took me uh, to this fantastic place in jayanagar okay he said this is a great place you start doing yoga here so i i said okay fine and it was fantastic it was transformational you know first of all we were with a group of guys uh, uh, and uh, we had to be there at 5:30 in the morning so that very good discipline started there the instructors were just fantastic guys see they didn't sugarcoat stuff they just this is like a army kind of a, re- a regiment okay nothing like let him just get in touch with mother earth and send your energy there you know none, none of that uh, that bs okay so they would they, this is what they would do you have to do this, this is how you should do it and i actually enjoyed it because there were many other people and we all it was a sense of you know it really went very very well and those two guys frankly they had a kind of a light in their in around them i cannot explain what that is but that really got me and within 3 4 months they had literally turned me around when i say turned me around i mean that i was actually doing things i never thought i'll be able to do in many many ways and that that started the stuff then along the way i i i kind of missed a few months i would miss it and i would immediately see the effect of missing that thing what what happened to me so anyway the, uh, after that uh, you know in the past i would say 10 years 
though I've been doing now for about 30 years, but very erratically prior to that, but certainly in the past 10 years, this kind of a very focused uh, yoga practice. When I say yoga practice, I'm referring specifically to, uh, to asanas and also to pranayama. Uh, became part of it. So every day I get up, my first thing after I take my dogs for a walk and come back is I spend an hour and a half on the mat and have progressed, you know, I would say by any standards, not bad at all. I'm, I'm, I'm very, and I'm, I, you know, you probably know I'm much, much older than you, much, 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 much older than you, right? But I will tell you today, I'm, I'm at my physical and mental peak. I am. I, I'm in very, very good condition. And I know that I'm not bragging, but I'm telling you it's only because of yoga. The, the, the conscious, the clear, focused discipline of doing yoga for one, one and a half hours every day, week after week, month after month, year after year, gives you a certain kind of a radiance and energy, which I cannot describe. It's not a compliment to me. I'm just saying anyone can do it. Okay. And it has nothing to do with age. Uh, so, so all that put it, put me, you know, in the right spot for the publisher to reach out to me to ask me to write the book on yoga. Yes, you did. But uh, how did the publisher reach out to you? Do you write on yoga? Do you write articles on yoga? How no, did it did, I did not. Yeah, it, it was so, so because I had by that time, see, remember, I've already written, uh, I had written seven books by yeah. the time. Uh, and then, you know, uh, and they had been translated. So I suppose the publishing community kind of knew me. And this particular publisher, Jacko, uh, the CEO, a guy called Akash, I had, I had uh, you know, met him in Pune in about uh, maybe eight or nine years ago at some literary festival. And then we hit it off very well. And then he, he knew that I was very passionate about, about yoga. I would talk about it and how uh, wonderful it, you must do it. So we, our, our discussions were like that. And once in a while, you know, I, on my WhatsApp thing, I, I write something about yoga on my status. So uh, then he reached out to me on his own. It was a cold call. He called me and he said, you know, there's a need in the market for a book, which I'm about to tell you about. And I think only you can write it. Mm -hmm. So I said, what, what is this now? So he said, look, uh, the, yoga, the yoga sutras of Patanjali, uh, uh, ha, uh, we need a kind of a kind of interpretation from a self-help angle, self-help angle. So I wasn't sure what that meant. So he said, you know, we as, as a publishing house, we focus on books which are for mind, body and soul. And typically we like to tell people that they can do these things themselves. And there's actually a substantial market for it. So can you write something on the yoga sutras? So I said, fine. Now I had glanced at it casually, but it was frankly overhead transmission quite a lot because there's a lot of very dense material as I found out later. So I said, fine. So I, I looked at the Sanskrit and I looked at a number of different, uh, uh, you know, interpretations and there were many of them by, by people much, much more, uh, well, I mean, sincerely they're up there, Vivekananda, Edwin, Brian, you know, BK Sangha. So many people who have really great spiritual depth have written. So, who the heck am I to write about this was my thought. Okay. So then we tried to figure out what, what, how, to, how to go about the so-called self-help. How do you do a self-help for Patanjali's Yoga Sutras? So um, then we went through a couple of false starts. Luckily, I had a very good editor. Uh, we had a couple of false starts. Now, let me explain to you that, uh, let me take a moment to tell you about the Yoga Sutras. You probably already know, but, but okay, let me repeat. So uh, uh, Patanjali was this figure shrouded in history and mystery going back a thousand, uh, 2,500, 3,000 years. Uh, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff that he was half human, half snake. And some say he was in Punjab, some say he was in Chidambaram. Nothing is clear. But he was, in any case, he has a reputation for writing three books, three major things. One is the Yoga Sutras, uh, and the other one is on Ayurveda, and the other one is on, on grammar. Okay. But the Yoga Sutra, I think, is where uh, you know people know him the know him the most. Okay, uh, but uh, any case, so he he and the history of how he came to Chidambaram, how he watched the dance between uh, Shiva and Parvati, it's all very beautiful. You know how he came from the heavens, lovely stuff. So any case, he uh, uh, he has written this 196 sutra thing, which tells you what is yoga, and the brilliance of his communication is so amazing that you know I teach. Rashmi, as you may know, I also teach business communication in terms of writing. So I have these certain models of how to write, how to frame your all that. Okay, um, and uh, then when I read the whole thing, I realized that this guy had predated us by three thousand years in terms of how to communicate. Over and above what the content was, the, the mechanism of of communication was extraordinary. And I will tell you what I mean. So typically, when we start writing on something, let's say we start talking about, uh, uh, you know. Um, global um, global warming okay so how would we typically write a uh, thing on global warming 
we say, okay, this is the data, this is what's happening, you know, terrible stuff is going on, and then this is the other implications, blah, 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 and therefore, this is what it means, and we need to take action. This is the typical flow we have been taught in our schools, that this is the way, and it's nothing, nothing wrong with it, but that's the way. Now, the problem is in modern times, people don't have the time to read your huge essay and want to know, get to the point, what do you want to say? So a number of models have come up in the West, especially in the management consulting field, where oddly enough, I've, cons I've consulted them on how to told them how to train their consultants to write like this for maximum impact. You start with the end first. You start with the conclusion first, okay? Then work it back backwards. So now what did uh, Patanjali do? Patanjali has four chapters. The first chapter is called the Samadhi Pada. Okay, he starts the very first, first uh, line is yoga chitta vritti nirodaha that's the first line which is yoga is a cessation of all stimulus you don't let your mind get now so in other words he reached the conclusion first he starts with the conclusion and the rest of the chapter is all about the state of samadhi types of samadhi how to get i mean what are the mechanisms intricacies layers subtext what are the kinds of things that will stop you from getting there including bad health laziness all that stuff very brilliant practical stuff is written there that's a samadhi pada so that's the Samadhi, that's chapter one. Now chapter two, he says, okay, now that you know what Samadhi is, let me tell you how to get there. That's called the Sadhana Pada. So observe observe the, the structuring of his thought process. Because now he's got you hooked. He's got you hooked because you know what the end state is going to be. So how do you get there? Then he starts talking about eight branches of yoga in which he says the third branch is asanas, which is what we do, the physical part. He goes, and just for the, for the record, since we're talking, Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. These are the Ashto Angani, eight, eight branches of yoga. So now if I open a yoga class, students say, I'm going to teach you yoga. And I say, first is Yama, Niyama. Yama is your outward behavior. I'm going to teach you how to behave with the outside world. Do you think anyone's going to come? No one's going to come, right? So if we just jump, jump directly to the third and fourth, which is uh, you know Asana and Pranayama, that's, that's pretty much what it is. But it starts from there. So he gets into great detail. And he there are these five of the eight are what we call bahiranga, which is to say the physical body and outward behavior. These are the five angles or, or angs of, of, of the thing. Then you go, uh, you know, then you go inside, antaranga, which is dharana dhyana. So observe the communication dynamics, beautiful way he structured it so that you can't go wrong. It's just an extraordinary piece of work. So that's the second part is the method to get there. The third is a very interesting one and many call it a mystical part of, of uh, Patanjali's uh, you know, work. It is called the, uh, called the Vibhuti Path, which talks about the kinds of dangers that you will, the kinds of powers and dangers that you will actually experience during this exposition. Now, those you may say, these are all, this all nonsense, black magic or whatever it is, you know, that's, that's up to you. I don't believe so. I believe that persons who do what, what he's talked about can achieve certain extraordinary powers, which is difficult to explain and may not uh, bear the so-called, uh, you know, scrutiny of quote-unquote Western science. It doesn't matter. It's just the way it is. You know, uh, for, for those of us in music, we know how the sounds of certain kinds of uh, rags make a difference, the sound of the tanpura, what it does to you, how certain, uh, you know, your, some, some of your senses are heightened and all those things. So there's a lot of amazing stuff in that. And finally, he concludes with a, with a, with a final greater exposition, like an executive summary and explaining more, uh, you know, what, what the state of samadhi is. And he ends with an unbelievably beautiful uh, visual description of what he calls dharma mekha samadhi, you know, which is, which is like at that point, your karmas are gone, your kleshas, gunas, everything is destroyed. Even knowledge has no meaning. He says things like that. And then you were out at a solitary splendor of light. So, you know, it's difficult to explain because both the Sanskrit and then put it together. It's very beautiful to read, you know, all the stuff. So I know that's a long answer, but you asked how it started. So that's what I said. You know, I, I he said, let's do this as a self-help. So what did I take these 196 sutras? I took them 15 sutras at a time. I took the entire bunch of Sanskrit stuff to the end and the appendix so that people don't get sidetracked by the fact that they don't know Devanagari, they don't know Sanskrit. Because in my opinion, many of these uh, books which try to explain uh, our, our ancient scriptures falter in the sense that the reader doesn't know how, doesn't know what to make of it. So when, if they get you know, disturbed in their thinking because they, they can't understand Sanskrit, the probability, there's a high probability they will stop reading after three or four pages because they don't know what to make out of it. So this, I think this hit us, me and my editor, that let's take our, take the sutras to the end and just stick to collections of the basic thoughts in these 15 things. 
instead of going doing a line by line analysis, instead of having tangential explanation that in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna said this, or in the Rig Veda, this happened. No, none of that. So it's fairly simple. Lots of my own uh, experiences, the, you know, uh, for example, things I talked about, my father helping me and so on. I've talked about it. I will put a lot of classical music references there, uh, how Rag Marva is like this and Rag Ramkali is like this and so on, because they actually help in, in explaining certain kinds of concepts. And at the end of every chapter, I talk about, which is very common, the takeaways of the chapter. I don't like that word, but it, it works. The three top takeaways from these 15, uh, this, this composite bunch of 15 sutras. So that's how we progress through that. And there are lots of graphics. Graphics help. It's a modern technique which we must use. Okay, so there are about 15 or 20 graphics. I got someone in Canada to help me. A bright young lady, she did it for me. So that is also going to help the visual relief of the reader and also explains important concepts, uh, concepts to them. So that's how this whole book happened. And during the period of writing, I went into some kind of a catatonic uh, trance. Mm. Uh, maybe, maybe it sounds exaggerated, but I think it wasn't because that's all I was thinking about. Line by line, I tried to see what, what beautiful thoughts this man had written and you know how others have written about it. I compared, I had a, this, this table, which is a mess you can't see, but I typically live in a mess. So lots of books over here opened up and I'm reading this and reading this, the Sanskrit, reconciling contradictions and getting mentally exhausted. So when it, when it finished, I, it was like, you know, I don't think I'll ever be able to write anything like this in, in the future. It's not possible. I might write, but not equivalent in terms of mental intensity and so on. But do you have the book in front of you? Or no, no, unfortunately, no, because, uh, you know, it is... Uh, it is available on uh, on Amazon, but even there they will deliver only on November fifteenth. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I'll send you the I'll send you the cover. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, and when you look at it now, Vasu, the completed mm. works, and mm. you're talking about it, what is that one thought that comes to you or occurs to you whenever you see the completed work? See, I'll tell you. I'll tell. Okay, so it's a fair question, and I will give you an answer. But don't take my don't take my answer as, as something negative, yeah, and I'll true. tell you why. What turns what this seems to ultimately uh, say is we are all alone. But because we are here because of past things, and the whole business of karma is explained very beautifully. Okay, uh, how we respond to situations is explained very very beautifully. Or you know, it's called basically a calibration of the cocktail of gunas, three gunas, and so on. Yeah. So those are there, and then how we respond to situations, why, why, we, why we live like this, what is our, our, our length of our lifetimes, uh, whether we are human or animal. So the whole thing is explained in these 196 things. So when you read this stuff, and you know you have this, you're overcome by this incredible flood of respect for this man, you know, in 2005, what he said and how he said it, and how those words seem to be timeless. Like I said, the end, the last chapter is this thing. A couple of other experts I've talked talk to have said this, give the same thing, that feeling of, you know, you feel like dear dharma megha samadhi, dharma, a rainfall of dharma, okay, uh, and a solitariness, the thing that there's no thought in the mind, you aren't, the business of the ego is gone, the feeling of individual, individual uniqueness is gone. These are profound and beautiful thoughts. Now, uh, so what I'm saying is that, is that is one thing. You realize that you are alone. Now, in that, if now, so therefore, I think it actually changed me in the process of writing and subsequently uh, that, you know, to respond immediately to any provocation is not a good idea. And whatever is happening, there's a plan, there's a reason, etc. So those things are very comforting in their, in their own way. Going back to the day-to-day the -day yoga practice itself, which is frankly only one-eighth of the entire practice of yoga, asanas, even that has profoundly affect, affected, been affected. Uh, I, I, it's difficult to explain to you, but you know, when you do yoga with focus, your balance you, it can improve. You can actually close your eyes, you can have a, a band around, you can do very difficult balancing uh, on your head or even on a single thing. All that changes. You know, that whole business of dharana, dhyana, samadhi, focus, discipline, when you start trying to absorb it, you know, into into your lifestyle, your your life itself, it starts making a major major difference. Unfortunately, you have only my word for it, but I would like to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that now that you are in this reflective space, Vasu, yes. the pandemic was one huge challenge for all of yeah, us. Yeah. 
Yeah, and was it something which took you into reflection as well? Was this book already there at that point of time? Were you in that reflective space? What did you draw from the pandemic? Well, uh, the timing was right, but I, I can't claim that the book was already in my periphery at the time. That, that would be exaggeration. It could be a lie, but it isn't true. Uh, I was, of course, doing yoga. I had started teaching people yoga. Okay, because you know a lot of people had time on their hands, you had to do that, and a lot of people wanted to learn from me, and I started teaching yoga. So I did to some extent for several months. I taught in the morning, but normally, as I've seen in that in that process of doing so, a lot of people drop out also. Yeah. They can't sustain it, you know, because it, it doesn't seem to be giving the results they want, or they've already pre-decided that they are not flexible. You know, there's a term called "I'm not flexible, so I can't do." But but that is. The objective of yoga isn't that at all. But if you sit down and explain to them, that's not the objective. There's a philosophy. Nobody has the time and the patience for it, to be honest. Okay, So that happened. I started figuring out how to teach yoga. But interestingly enough, prior to that, you, you know my interest in music. I had started teaching music. I had never felt that I was competent enough to teach. I never had felt that. I, have never, I've been, I may have taught a little violin here and there to a few people. But all of a sudden, I find this a huge demand. Okay, uh, started with my, my schoolmates and they all said, you know, I wish I had learned music. Why don't you teach me? Then one guy became two, then three and four. And all of a sudden I had 25 people and I was teaching them music and I was not charging them anything. Okay, uh, so I did that quite a bit. And that was very, 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 very helpful because uh, very uh, honestly, you know, it prepared me. It made me whatever knowledge I have of ragas, which is average, I would say, um, helped me to go two or three layers below. Because now I'm teaching. I'm teaching. I'm spending a lot of time teaching people who don't know much about music. I'm doing it because I want to want to see them succeed. So then it started having a different set of vibrations for me. Because I'm not a vocalist, and yet I started teaching vocal music. I mean, what guts, <laughs> you know? So I started teaching them. It was going well because suddenly my throat started vibrating, and you know, all kinds of. So therefore, at the end of that, and even during when the when the offer came, it made sense. Because now there's a greater awareness. Even in, even in Patanjali's uh, Yoga Sutra, he talks about the throat. Uh, you know, Kantakupe, uh, uh, he talks about that, things like that. And uh, there is this whole music, which is also considered part of the whole yogic experience. You know, So all surround, you surround yourself with the Tanpura and do yoga. What can I say? Okay. So the short answer is yes, the pandemic was helpful for me to discover that I could teach music to whatever extent. Uh, helped me to, uh, I, you know, grab this subject with, because I, I did not say no. I, I realized the moment this guy said, can you write this book? I said, this is, this is some kind of sign. I don't know what sign it is. I better grab it. Okay, how, how often do you get the publisher call, calling you and saying, write the book? You know, you're normally it's you who's falling at their feet, but it's the other way around here. So I grabbed it. I said, I'll figure out what to do. And I did. So, uh, I, I mean, I hope that I, that answers that, right? Uh, it was just timing. Everything went perfectly well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we are at that point where everything went perfectly well, but if there are yeah. three life lessons that you'd like to leave us with, what are the three life lessons that you have derived from life itself? See, that is, uh, that would, it, would be, it, it sounds pompous for me to, to even to say that to anybody that, you know, learn from me, I have wisdom, you have none. No, I don't think I would. That, is, that would be presumptuous. But since you have been sweet enough to ask me, uh, like I said, that first lesson which I mentioned earlier, that you're actually alone. And, and being alone is not a bad thing. That experience, the solitariness, uh, uh, you know, with, you may be surrounded by, by family, uh, etc. It doesn't mean anything. As long as, you know, you, 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 if you understand what is yoga about, and there's a larger purpose and so on, those philosophies are very comforting. They give you hope. So if you take the time to read about those things, you will not be dismayed by the fact that you're alone, the number one. Number two, uh, uh, is, is, you know, regarding passions generally, passions generally, I, 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 that it is critically important for you to be insane about something, something you have to be abnormally fixated with some beautiful thing that you really want to do for yourself. Okay, it could be art. Uh, we have, you heard of many stories of crazy artists, you know, who just give up everything. I, I, I applaud them, you know, they're searching for a purpose. It could be music. I told you when I was a little boy, I used to play alone in the dark. Today too, I, I sit by myself and I play, put the Tanpura electron, and I play for you know, a good one hour every day I play in the evening. Nobody's around. I just play for myself. And I think it's wonderful, wonderful. I realize I'm very lucky. I do realize that. But, but now when I go back to my early 30s, and I had gone to Calcutta to meet my teacher to, for, to be taught, I remember how arrogant I was. Okay. 
uh, there in one corner of his large, not, not large, a small size, there was an elderly gentleman uh, who was singing quietly to himself and singing very badly. Okay, an elderly man. So me, because you know my guru had said and introduced, oh, he America say I had he's a brilliant violinist. So obviously that went to my head. So I said, you know, what is this old man doing? And he's not even good. What the hell is he doing over there? Then I came to know, and it immediately humbled me. Turned out this gentleman was a cloth merchant in a, in a, in, a, in some market in Calcutta, and all his life he had wanted to learn music, but he never could. It was internal inhibitions plus his society or his community did not encourage that. So he wanted to do it, even though he was 70, he wanted to learn from, from fundamentally. He didn't care why he was learning, etc. So what lesson is that there, there, that you have to have a passion or anything and you have to cultivate it actively. It has to be part of you as an individual. Otherwise, when you get into your 50s, 60s, 70s, there'll be plenty of time for regret. I know this because I have friends in the US who are very, very, very well off, very wealthy. Okay, they have, you know, the typical American story, you know, you start a company, sell it for X million dollars. And they're they're not happy. They said, you know, I don't know what to do with myself. I don't have anything that I have actively cultivated. I've tried to, you know, so that is the second thing is as soon as possible, get it. So whenever I meet people, ask them, take up music, start writing. And I pump them up often. I tell them, look, you're, you're sitting on this kind of wisdom. And most people are actually, so you know, you know all this stuff, yet you don't want to leave a legacy behind. So why don't you consider writing? I'll help you. So that's, that's, that's the thing. I think those are the two things. But the third is, I suppose, to have a variety of other interests as well. I mean, you can't be oblivious to it. Uh, and I do. I have, you know, quite a number of interests. And I don't feel anything wrong, wrong with it. So life lessons is too much for me to be lecturing others on it. This is just my journey. And I'm, I'm fairly satisfied with it. I mean, I've seen the world. You know, I've had a, a you know, decent uh, you know, family life. And everything is, is, is pretty good, you know. Uh, so I have no complaints. And right now, at this stage of life, things I'm doing, I, I'm, I'm busy, active, I'm forever, forever, you know, doing social causes, signing up people for voting, uh, stuff, rescuing dogs. So I've had a full life. So I keep myself busy. I don't know if when people want to get lessons from it. That's fine. <laughs> Vasudev Murthy, you truly are an inspiration. Love the way you look at life and simplify everything and make it so easy. While it takes a lot to be all that you have tried to be to make a difference. Thank you so much for this conversation on you and I with Rashmi Shetty. Thank you so much, Rashmi. It's an absolute pleasure talking to you. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. With that, we come to the end of this weekly quest of you and I with Rashmi Shetty. Do let us know if you know people who make the world beautiful. Write in to rashmi.thethirdeye at gmail.com that is r-a-s-h-m-i dot t-h-e-t-h-i-r-d-e-y-e at gmail.com Come, let's explore this amazing world together, both you and I.